The fifth lesson is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. So amongst the hills, uh, the hillside farms of western Pennsylvania, sits a small natural spring that is known by the locals there who fill their freshwater jugs as Shabandi Hollow. The spring barely trickles there in the heat of summer, but it rolls down the hill drips at a time sometimes, into the Shabandi Hollow Crick, as the locals call it. A mile further down, the crick empties into a larger stream known as the Sulphur Creek because of its reddish tint and pungent aroma. And a little further down, the Sulphur Creek empties into the Monongahela River. Here, the river is a couple hundred yards wide. And if you follow the Monongahela River, eventually you get to where Heinz Field and PNC Park sit and the city of Pittsburgh rises. And right about there, the Allegheny meets the Monongahela and they turn into the formidable Ohio River. And then there's the Ohio River. It's deep and it's wide and it cuts a certain path through Cincinnati and Louisville, I think as they call it locally, and eventually into the Mississippi, the mightiest of rivers in America. Miles and miles downriver, the Mississippi empties into the Gulf of Mexico, which blends into the massive Atlantic Ocean. After many days, a simple cup of Shabandi Hollow water becomes part of the mile upon mile upon mile of earth-covering sea. The beauty of a Lessons and Carols service is that the scriptures and the hymns walk us down the stream of God's redemptive purposes for creation. We get to see the big picture, as it were. That even at that moment when the Lord is bringing judgment on Adam and Eve after the fall, when the curse and expulsion from the garden and separation from God make all seem lost, even then, God promises that one day, a son, a son of Eve would defeat Satan. He, God, would take it upon himself to make things right, many miles downstream. So how did God do it? Well, 
in order to get at how God did it, we should start at the very beginning. They say the beginning's a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC. When you sing, you begin with Do Re Mi. And when you're talking about God and his plan of redemption, the gospel message, you begin with the garden. You begin in a garden. So what was God's intention with creation? We can read about God's intention with creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God created man and woman in his image to reflect him, to bear his image. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. He sets man and woman in the garden and says, tend to this garden, keep it, bring order out of chaos. And the man and the woman were one, they were naked and they were unashamed. Think about the picture of being in the Garden of Eden. We talk about that often here. It's a picture of the presence of God, of being at peace, at peace with themselves before God and before one another. They were able to know God and be known by God, to experience God in full, to experience what it is to be loved. They were completely full. And God gave them this mandate, this direction. He said, I want you to tend the garden. Take the jungle and make it into a fruitful, beautiful, flourishing garden. Something you can enjoy for its beauty and for its food. And I want you to multiply, to fill the earth, to flourish, to spread over the whole of creation. You know, one of the things we often overlook is that God's original intention for Adam and Eve in that garden was not just to stay in the garden. It was actually to expand the garden. They were supposed to take that little plot of land with the two of them and take the chaos and bring order, take the jungle and bring beauty in that garden. And as they had more children and more and more children, and as they gardened further, Eden was supposed to spread over the whole of creation. For all eternity, they were supposed to live in that joy and that peace and that beauty. Keep that picture in mind. Because, uh, of course, as we read in Genesis 3, along came the fall of humankind. Sin came in and ruined it all. It, of course, first separated humanity from God and as a result from one another and from the creation itself. And so we live in a broken world, a broken creation filled with suffering and sickness and catastrophes and injustices and death. A number of years back, right around Christmas time, I had a horrible bout of the flu in every possible way you could have the flu. And I remember thinking, oh, I wish that I could die. But I also remember for a moment thinking, I am so grateful that this is not the end. That there is something beyond this. The mere flu brought me to long for heaven, for eternity, for a return to Eden when there would be no sickness. That was just the flu. I know some in this room have dealt with far worse and are dealing with far worse sicknesses. We live in a broken and fallen world. We have dealt with the pain of divorce, of miscarriages, of loss, of loneliness, of failures in life. 
for many, Christmas time is actually a very painful time because it's, a, it's a, just a sharp, painful reminder of the things that aren't the way they used to be. And of course, as we look around the world, we know it's a broken world. It's a world filled with injustices, with poverty and suffering and people being trafficked and war and death. And yet, as we read through the Old Testament, from Genesis 3 into Genesis 4 and on into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, as the Old Testament unfolds, there's a sense of purpose and direction in God's plan. First, God calls Abraham, and then he rescues his people in the Exodus. Then he establishes David as his king. And then he proclaims his judgment and his promise of salvation through the prophets. And what you see as you read through the Old Testament is that the creek becomes a stream, becomes a river. It keeps growing. One day, one day, God, with all of his creative and restorative power, will enter creation. With his presence, he will bring shalom and rescue and restoration. But it never seems like it comes. You see, from the day of Isaiah, one of the prophets that we read about 700 B.C., to the day of Jesus, Israel wondered, this world is broken. Will God actually come and save us? Will he rescue and restore us like he said he would? If you'd lived in Israel those hundreds of years before Christ, you would have said, God's plan of redemption seems broken. And yet the prophets, like Isaiah and Micah, which we read this morning, And the rest of the prophets again and again offer hope. The hope is God is going to show up. And when he does, he's going to make things right. And so the people of Israel during that period looked back to Eden before the fall and what they saw was peace and wholeness, that Hebrew word shalom. They saw a time when God dwelled with the man and the woman And there was no sickness or sorrow or pain or sin. A time when there was peace between humanity and creation and their creator. And I think they prayed, God, rescue us from our enemies. Restore all of creation. Set this broken world to right. Show up. The funny thing was the way that God did show up and make things right seemed to surprise everybody. I mean, that's what Christmas is all about, right? Christmas seems like an absolutely ridiculous solution to the greatness of the problem. The world is completely messed up, and I'm coming as a baby. I remember as a kid who believed in God thinking, why didn't God come with all that power, the fire and the lightning, and get rid of all the bad guys and all the evil, just kind of show up in power and strength? And I wonder how many adults in this room have cynically given up on God. I mean, you look around the world and you wonder, how can there be a God with a world like this? But I also wonder if that part of us that senses that something is wrong, that part of us that sees and understands that there is injustice, I wonder if God planted that in us from the beginning. I wonder if our discontent with the way the world is is our created inner longing to get back to Eden. 
God's solution to come as a baby was just as challenging to the people in Jesus' day. They did believe that God would come to right all wrongs, to restore creation. They believed God would arrive, but that he would show up in a stable in Bethlehem and be born to Mary and Joseph, those peasant people, did not fit anything they expected. And yet that's what the Bible tells us. In Jesus, in Jesus, God arrives as a baby. The creator enters the creation in a cradle. This is the message that the angel gave to Joseph in, Gen- in uh, Matthew chapter one. He says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. A virgin will be with child. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph and Mary are given the promise that the baby born to them would be Emmanuel, God with us. God would finally show up. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He has a translation of the Bible called The Message, which is a little more loose. And in John 1.14, he writes this. Here's his translation of the incarnation. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What happens when the creator of the universe moves into the neighborhood that he created? Everywhere the creator goes, the effects of the fall begin to unravel. We've talked about this before, how Jesus, everywhere he went, seemed to be pushing back the effects of the fall and unraveling it. Person after person meet Jesus and experience what it is when the creator comes to right wrongs. The outcast Zacchaeus is transformed and brought in and given a new family. The woman at the well in Samaria, she is rescued from her life of sin and given a life of hope for the first time. The blind see, the lame leap. When Jesus shows up, the demon-possessed are set free and Satan is defeated. Not to mention the places where Jesus goes, foot water becomes really good wine. A few loaves of bread feed thousands. Perilous storms are calmed. Even dead people seem to get up and walk again. When the creator enters a world of frozen winter where there never seems to be Christmas, as C.S. Lewis put it, Christmas finally arrives and the frozen winter begins to thaw. God's arrival in a feeding trough outside of Bethlehem brings the trickling stream to a mighty river and God's plan of rescue and restoration is inevitable. And this whole Christmas thing, this whole Emmanuel God with us has implications for us. First is this. When we talk about Emmanuel, God being with us, it means that we can actually know God. This past fall, I met in a small group of guys discussing the topic, Jesus. We read a book that was about Jesus' humanity, often meeting on my back patio around the fire pit, And as we talked about it, we talked about Jesus. Each chapter of this book was about a different aspect of Jesus' character and nature. Jesus was wise and courageous and honest and compassionate and loving and welcoming and forgiving. 
And those of us in the group who already have this really deep belief that Jesus is God, we actually had the hardest time with this book about Jesus' humanity. Because almost every chapter we'd read, we would come to this conclusion. Well, of course Jesus was wise and discerning. He is God. Of course Jesus was courageous and honest. He is God. Of course Jesus is compassionate and welcoming of outcasts and forgiving of sinners. He's God. But somewhere towards the end of this group meeting after multiple weeks, it came to me, how do we know? How do we know God is compassionate and forgiving and merciful and courageous and honest and wise? We know because of Jesus. We know God this way because Jesus has revealed him to be so. When God said, I want everyone to know me completely, he showed up in a baby born in Bethlehem and walked the earth in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Christmas, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, means we can know God. Second thing is this. Emmanuel means God is for humanity. God is for the creation. God is for us. Think about it. God's plan was not to bring justice and right all wrongs by showing up in force. God's plan was to right all wrongs by bringing justice on himself in our place. God did not come in power and judgment. He came in a diaper, in a cradle, dependent on parents to feed him. God came not with sword wielded to deliver punishment, but with nails in his hands to bear punishment. He offers himself for us in the most vulnerable and sacrificial way possible so that we might be reconciled to God, restored to him and to one another, so that we might be resurrected and given new and eternal life. At Christmas, we see God for us. That's the gospel message. That's what it all boils down to. But not only do we see God for us, rescuing us from our sin and our brokenness, we actually also see by his coming and becoming a man, we see that God is for the creation itself, which means he's for this place that we live in right now. Jesus moved into the neighborhood, as that one passage says, in order to rescue humanity, but in also in order to say that creation in this place in which we live is important. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he's giving a taste of what creation is meant to be. Blind people seeing, really good wine, bread for the hungry, family for those who are lonely, dead people raised. This is the way life is meant to be. 
the incarnation shows us God is for this place, for this creation we live in. Now, the intention of this sermon originally was to be all about Christ Church Vienna's vision and values. For those of you who have not been with us over the past six, seven weeks, we've been looking at the vision and values of this church, that we are a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. And today was supposed to be about being for Vienna. But I got caught up in the whole lessons and carols thing. So instead of a whole sermon on for Vienna, we have just a little sidetrack here. Christ Church Vienna is for Vienna, much like God, by becoming enfleshed, is for this creation. We take our cue from the incarnation, and we seek to be an incarnational church that is present in the community around us. This means we are not just a church that happens to be located in Vienna, as if it's a place we just use, but we are for this place. Jesus moved into the neighborhood of Bethlehem and Nazareth and Jerusalem not in order to advance his career, not because it was a nice place to live, not because it was a good place to raise kids. He moved there for that place, for those people. His purpose and intention was to be focused on and benefiting the people and place in which he was living and walking. So to be for a place like our church is for Vienna is to embrace and engage, to embrace and engage your neighborhood, your community, your place, your office, whether it's Vienna or somewhere else. For our church to be for Vienna is to pursue God's purposes for this place through our presence and involvement and relationships and vocations we seek the welfare of the place to which God has called us and put us. Let's go back to the beginning again. It all began in a garden, right? But where does the whole story end? It begins in a garden, but do you know where it ends? Genesis begins in a garden, but where does Revelation end? In a city. To tend and create a garden is to take chaos and bring order. It's to take jungle and bring beauty. It's to take an open land and make it into a flourishing farm. It's to take individuals and bring them into community so that relationships are developed deeper and wider. It's to build a society. It's to develop culture and beauty and joy and pleasure. The move from the garden to the city is God's purpose of developing this world into his vision, the city of God, the eternity to come. So when we talk about being for Vienna or for your office or for your school or for your street, it's to always ask, how is this place not like the city of God? not like the eternity to come. What is lacking here? What effects of the fall are most obvious? How can we be instigators to deepen community, to develop culture, to spread flourishing? You know, it's one of the reasons why I'm glad as a church that we don't currently have a building. 
I love being in Madison High School, in the schools as we've been for the past two years from the beginning. And one of the reasons is because we can set up an example of what it is to be for a place. So we have tried to advocate and be for this actual building. That piano over there was one that our church decided to buy for the school. We might leave, and we're going to leave that behind. The light bulbs in here were recently replaced by us for the benefit of the school. Why? Because we want to make this place good, better, stronger. Wherever God places us, in our offices or our small groups or the places of work that we go, how can we be for the place that God has put us? Not just users, not just looking at our land, our street, our house as a commodity. God has put us here to bless, to build, to encourage, to strengthen, to deepen community. It's why our church council recently set up a church planting fund rather than a church building fund so that we can increase God's blessing and presence in other communities in the D.C. area before we build ourselves a building. And if we ever do build a building 10, 20, 50 years from now, my hope is that we build the sort of building that's not just for us, but it's for this place that God has put us. An example of that is National Community Church, which is down in D.C., and two of their locations, they have built buildings for the communities around them. One near Capitol Hill has a, a coffee house and a, and a music venue so that during the week you can go there for coffee before you head to the Senate building or listen to have concerts there during the week, and on Sunday mornings they use it for church. Another one of their locations in Barracks Row in D.C. is a refurbished movie theater that they're intending to show films for the local community to enjoy. And on Sundays, they use it for church. What does it look like to be a church that builds a building for its place around it? It's to ask questions like, how could our church building be an incubator for new businesses? Or how could we also create affordable housing for those who can't afford to live here? Or how could our church also create space for elder care? How can God use us in this place? God has put you in this place for a purpose. And it's helpful in whatever vocation you've been called to, whatever street you live on, whatever school you go to, to think, how can I be purposeful for this place? There's a local restaurateur who recently wrote about changes that they're making to one of their restaurants. I love how she put it. She said, there will be a few changes to the day to the decor, but what we will not change is our commitment to bring to Vienna the finest in cuisine and service. Very simply, to bring the best to the place to which you have been called. In the manger, God shows that he is for us, for this place, and he wants us to do the same. And lastly, in Emmanuel, in Christmas, in God with us, we learn that God wants to be with us. As we look through the story and we look at where God dwells, in Eden, he dwells face to face with humanity. In the Old Testament, God is harder to find. You have to go to the temple through priests and through religion to access God distant. But at Christmas, 
God comes in flesh. He takes up residence in our neighborhood and says, here I am. You can know me as your friend. And now, where does God dwell? Where does God take up residence? In us. By the Spirit of God, he takes up residence in the heart and life of whoever believes in him. The birth of Jesus calls us to receive him. Whether that's joyfully like Zacharias singing his song or like the Magi bringing their gifts or completely terrified and unsure what God wants to do with you like Joseph and Mary. We simply say, okay God, let it be to me as you have said. Will you welcome Jesus into your neighborhood? Invite him to live with you. Let's pray. God, despite our present trouble and suffering, we put our hope in the birth of Jesus, that God has come. We pray that as the arrival of Jesus, God incarnate sets in motion the day that you will come and bring true peace and goodwill and your presence for all mankind. We pray that we might have hope and trust in you. And until that day, we pray, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel.